0: for everyone who comes under pressure, the ability of their mind to think broadly diminishes. As we come under pressure, the brain just can't conceive as many things as it used to. It may be chasing all over the place, but it can't just calm and hold and consider things as it used to, as it would normally when you're relaxed. So under pressure, your brain is working less well, can see less options, and as soon as you become aware that you're under pressure, it does pay to go and have a yarn to someone. You know, welcome to Boots Off Log On, a podcast where we talk
1: all things farm business, a show about the business of farming, bringing you insights and wisdom from the leaders in farm business, helping you minimize risk and maximize return on all your hard work. I'm David, and I'll be your host for the show. Good day, everybody. Welcome again to the podcast. In this episode, I'm talking with Chris Wheatcroft, the CEO of Rural West. Rural West has evolved from the original Rural Financial Counselling Service, and it is set up with a mandate to support and encourage self-reliance with strategies that assist rural people in managing industry change and their challenges. Chris himself is a fifth-generation farmer from South Australia who ended up moving to WA in his 20s and developed a passion for understanding and helping people while working with troubled teens in the country. This led to a career-long commitment to training and innovation in the pursuit of helping people adjust to change and challenges. We talk about why change is hard for most people, the limitations of automatic biases in decision-making and the power of helping individuals break free from limiting thought patterns. Drawing on inspiration from Daniel Kahneman's work on behavioural economics, the discussion delves into a fascinating discussion around the complexities of human behaviour. Chris shares his poignant stories from rural counselling, providing a vivid portrayal of the challenges faced by individuals in diverse financial situations, plus developing the unique counselling model emphasising the importance of externalising issues for discussion and creating a proactive framework for his clients. Chris's advice for young farmers becomes a focal point emphasising the holistic approach required for success beyond the paddock. From financial acumen to effective communication, resilience, the podcast provides a wealth of insight for those navigating the dynamic landscape of agriculture, especially those who are new to the industry. So join me with this thought-provoking interview that seamlessly intertwines personal narratives, rural insights and behavioural perspectives, leaving you with a profound appreciation for the complexities of life's journey. Now, over to Chris. Thanks, Chris. Welcome to the podcast, um, and um, it's good to have you here today. Excellent to be here. <laughs> no worries, mate. Um now you um, have a long. You're you're a bit like me. Your family's been around ag a long while. Now I think I read somewhere on the internet you're a fifth fifth generation yeah, farming fifth generation. Fifth generation in so that means your your family came here pretty early on the peas because WA's not been around that long as a as a farming um, entity. Um, so can you just tell us? I actually want to understand the journey from farm boy. To see uh, rural West, so I know there's a lot of stuff in there, but can you give us a brief run we'll, we'll through? We'll try and leave out some of the stuff, leave <laughs> out all the stuff that you, that you don't want in there. This is a chance to just tell us all the good highlight reel.
0: Oh, the highlight. Okay, so I was born fifth generation farmer in South Australia. I didn't really realise what that meant at the time. It's only when I moved to West Australia when I was 22. But as I grew up, anywhere I went on the peninsula, people would know me. The, the Everyone's fathers or their grandfathers would be asking, Oh, Roy Wheatcroft. Yeah, okay, we know Roy. So I was always located. When I got to West Australia, it was fascinating because um, no one knew me and no one cared. <laughs> and I never knew that that was a thing that I had growing up. So it's fascinating. Did yeah. you find that a freedom? It's like when you travel when you're young. I
1: found like I, when I first traveled by myself in Europe when I was 18. There's just this, this, this beautiful um, freedom of not having
0: any expectation on you. You're just this random dude in this place. I found more freedom when I moved to the city, actually, because right. you think there's so many people, but actually no one cares in the city at all. Whereas in the country, people know what's going on yeah. in their town and with their neighbours and, yeah, just the community. I always say that to um, people about, you know, because there's a lot of shows on
1: telly about living in country towns, you know, like those. Yeah. And I say, yeah. So it's, it's different. So, so when you're in a country, t- and I always say, well, I could always tell people in the early days who had grown up in a country town because they were incredibly, they tend to get on with it, people, a lot of different people, really easily. And I say, yep. because when you live in a country town, you, the, the, you've got your crowd, and you don't get to choose your crowd. You, it's just there, absolutely. And everybody's different, just like they are in the city. But you just, they just learn to get on in most cases, don't you? So yeah. But,
0: but in the city,
1: comment. but you you get to choose your crowd. So you can pretty much avoid anyone you don't like. Exactly.
0: <laughs> they don't even like their neighbours quite often, <laughs> it seems. But no, this um, young bride was saying to me that her mother-in-law had said to her when she moved to the country that you actually, in the country, you may not even like your friends, but these are the people that are your friends. Yeah. And and it's a very interesting insight. It's a play with words, but it's actually true, isn't it? That in the country, people you you don't decide, do I really like this person? Like, it's like these are the people you live with, and you you make friends of them. But, but their it, community. Yeah, but there's also a, my my uh, father very
1: early on. He he. My dad's a, He's not as talkative. Of me, he's quite a gentle guy. And he always just said, listen to everyone because everybody has their story. And he goes, it doesn't matter whether they're shearing your sheep or they're lending you money or, or they're driving your truck or whatever. Listen to everyone because everyone has their story. And, yeah. and in a country town, that's so true, isn't it? Everybody's yep. different. Everybody has their story. Um, and, you, you know, and I think in country towns, in order to get on, we have to learn to, to get in touch with those stories, don't we?
0: I think so. Anyway,
1: continue. I've interrupted you, mate. So, <laughs> nice. so you're South Australian boy, you yeah. know, you moved to WA.
0: Farmed till I was 28, so, f- yeah, for six years. And um, broadacre farming, never knew anything else really. And then it just didn't work out, partly with the family and partly I just wanted something different. So I, I moved to the city and started to work with teenagers with emotional behavioural difficulties um, via a year in and at their youth centre. But... And that was fascinating because it's a totally different world and I hadn't realised that you, you hear of institutionalised kids but not so much institutionalised staff, but I work with people who had totally lost that ability to understand why they were going to work and they'd lost that dream they had when they set mm. out to work with kids and it, they didn't choose to lose it in a sense. It just happened to them, but they live within it and they're making choices that keep them constrained Mm. And I've I found that a fascinating insight into into the psychology of it. And so you're you're sort of coming into the the newbie. Yeah, yeah, and, and absolutely. You've, and you
1: kind of I've deliberately chosen this because I think I can have an impact. I'll, I'll let you tell your story, but yeah, but they at some point you're saying may have had the same drive.
0: I think they would have. You know, basically you don't go into a helping industry unless you want to help. mm, Do you? I know? I I think genuinely they did at the start. I never knew them back then of course. But I could see how how that institution destroyed what I would say is destroyed people. Mm. They may not agree they're destroyed, but you know to lose that ability to be happy and laugh about what's going on is is a significant loss. Mm. And, oh. and probably
1: a lot less valuable to their clients ultimately too, which are these. Well, I think the, they
0: become harmful. Yeah, okay. I, I mean, yeah, I okay. With, I'm, I'm much harsher. I have got a, a right wing bent really in terms yeah. of, you know, I like markets and I like, I like the energy that says you either perform or, or you should change. Yeah. But in that system, people can go on for quite a while and not, not perform. I mean, your whole job is there to, to benefit those kids really. And they're teenagers, but yeah,
1: I always say that to my um sons and friends about politics. I said, you know like you know, by and large, and maybe this is not so much true anymore with maybe the concept of a career politician, and I'm not that close to many to to understand. Yeah but i would have thought if if i had a bee in my bonnet like to enter politics you've kind of like you've you've got a bee in your bonnet haven't you you Absolutely. want you, you want to you want to have you're actually putting your hand up which i think is incredibly brave right yep. because it's tough and say so i want to somehow influence change in this in this town this country this state yep but when you get in there somehow it gets a lot harder <laughs> you know like and And at the same time, sometimes we see maybe that. We see a politician who's um, technically effective but have lost that drive that got them there in the first place or it's hidden under a layer of compromise somewhere, you know, so...
0: The great thing about politics is that they are about compromise. Not always compromise. They're about sorting out the fact people have different views and you have to come to a decision. Mm. And that's actually their role, isn't it? So while in one sense I think, yeah, we can knock politicians because they're always trying to keep some group happy in actual fact that's what we want from them we don't want a dictator we oh, want no. these people to go in and, and actually try and make it so everybody has some wins and I think in in a democracy it works really well where some of the population gets some wins some of the time and in the case of a, a democracy and a market economy you know
1: really there's a couple of concepts isn't there as a as a whole we're trying to grow the pie Right? Yes. And then we're trying to share the pie evenly, unlike just like a family, really, isn't it? Like, yep. so we as a group want to share this pie so we all benefit and grow the pie together. And really, that's the role of politics, isn't it? And
0: yes. You know, like to. And to enable it to happen. Yeah. Because while we want to share the pie evenly, we don't really, because we actually want to reward some of the people that are doing it 's a very powerful thing for people that do things more efficiently and effectively mm. for them to have more say in how it 's done because yeah. we all benefit from them benefiting yeah and it 's that balance isn 't it and, and and that's and that 's what makes politics both hard yes. and controversial and like um, you said, I have a lot of time for a lot of respect for politicians. no easy thing to put your hand up that level of sort of um, abuse that 's leveled on oh, people that try to do something regardless of whether they 're right or wrong they get a <laughs> A heap of um, oh, harassment, you who,
1: and you don't even have to agree with their politics. I think um, I remember I had a lot of respect for um, Peter Garrett, actually, who was essentially yes, he was a rock singer, but he he was an activist, right, yep. at heart, and he stuck his hand up and went into politics. Yep. Um, and I remember him talking once he went into Labour politics rather than Green politics, even though essentially he was a Greens yep person um, because he thought he could he could actually. Act, he could um, institute um, have more change, influence more change within the Labour Party, and then he found it brutally hard, obviously, and got into a bit of strife. And but I just have huge respect for that because he didn't just harp from the outside. He goes, "All right, I'm going to give it a crack. See if I can actually do something yep. here." Um, and not many, not many of us want to actually no. wade into those muddy waters and have a go, do we?
0: Yeah, and I think we get it a little bit wrong. We we tend to think. Ministers, from the outside, we definitely think ministers make decisions and control things. When you're close to those ministers, they are often struggling with their departments to get oh. them to do what they're asking. And the departments are sometimes struggling to deliver what's being asked. It's actually quite a complex thing. I think it's just an amazing... I've got a good friend who's a
1: Director-General, and when I listen to it, it's, it's such a complex, complex beast. And sometimes that complexity saves us from people who just... You know, I mean, yeah. com- 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 companies are beautifully simple, yes. right? Because you have a CEO like myself or yourself, and you yep. can go, okay, we want this to happen. Yep. It might have been the stupidest idea ever, but it still happens. Yes. <laughs> in, That's in, right. right? In, in politics you know, those get ironed out with this messy complexity. So, yes, it can stop some good things happening, but it stops all the bad stuff yeah. getting through as well, doesn't it? Yep. Anyway, you are now in WA and you're working with
0: with these, um, with these kids, you know. Yep. Uh, and um, so for a period of time I had energy. I think some of these jobs also take something from you. So you run out of energy for it. You run out of motivation. And um, the department when I joined it was changing how they were doing things. A very simple... Uh, I've got to be careful because we signed something to say we'll never disclose what yeah, was that's being fine. said. But they went from having an institution where you could lock kids in mm-hmm. to one that said there should be in open hostels. Mm-hmm. And then there was this move to actually have doors that could be locked to keep kids in the room so they didn't misbehave at night or whatever. Now, a part of that's correct, but a part of it is shifting back away from what is a philosophical approach to working with the kids where you need to get on side with them and enable them to actually make the decisions that they need to that are beneficial to themselves. Mm -hmm. Yeah? So, and once you lose faith in it, I think you should move on, you know, like because I I don't like being destructive in something. I think...
1: I want to actually ask before, I really want to move on to the rural stuff, but I want to ask... Going from a farm, so you're a farm boy right yeah and we've just been talking about politicians and conviction and stuff what's made you go that's the job for me I want to I want to do this what what's in you made you want to pick that
0: Well, a part of it I didn't because it was just a job I could get at the time after I had a, a bit of a blue with my dad so that part was true but then I was picked up by some people within the department I wasn't in the department when I first moved to work with teenagers and then they said would you yeah we really want you to come and apply for some jobs and work with us because I thought I had something to offer. And at that point, I sort of agreed with that—that that, that could be true. And in the, probably with those couple of people, it was true. They ran things really well, but the overall system is quite uh, difficult, as we've discussed with politicians, yeah. politics. Yeah.
1: So did the so essentially this? We're going to talk about this in a minute. But your your career into counselling ultimately.
0: Oh, it's enabling. It was enabling people to see something different. So what I realised was people often make these choices that they don't actually want to choose. So you have families, you have parents with kids um, that they almost can't stand, right? Mm. But when you sit with them, and for I worked while I was based in hostels for a year or two, I actually spent most of my time on community based teams, returning kids back to their family or enabling them to live somewhere else, but with a relationship with their parents. They all needed a level of relationship and they're okay. Even it was once a month almost, you know, for half an hour. It was still better than nothing, and it was as much as could be sustained. But anyway, I realized these parents were choosing a way of behaving that gave them these kids that misbehaved, and, and, and there was no good relationship. But the, it's not that they chose to not have a relationship with their kids. Mm. Right? They were trapped by their story, what I actually would now describe as a dominant story. So if I said to you, tell me what you did yesterday – You might take five minutes. You might take ten, right? Mm -hmm. If something good happened. but that's all you'd take. And if I asked about last week, you'd take about the same amount of time. Now, actually, to retell what happened yesterday would take twelve hours, Mm -hmm. but we don't do it. We our brain just automatically picks up on the key points and it gives it. It gives this summary. And and do we filter that
1: through how we how we think the day? We have this filter
0: in our world that goes, and we put everything through that filter. Yes, it happens before we become conscious. So the filter has already happened by the time we're thinking about it. So it's almost like you, I think, for there I am. (laughs) Well, it is, yeah. Yeah, they had good insights. So that notion that people are trapped by the way they're thinking. And if they can actually identify that, they'll often choose something different that they want, um, is really powerful. That really, that attracts me. That That is something that I can... I, I just feel energised by. It's really interesting. I remember when I first
1: read Daniel Kahneman and Amos Svansky. Yes, brilliant, brilliant book. Thinking Fast and Slow. We should have written that. We could have got a Nobel Prize. I know. I mean, do you know what blew me away about that book is that these guys were behavioural psychologists and they won the Nobel Prize for economics. Yes, I know. For proving <laughs> that humans were not a rational actor. I know. Right? Yes, and brilliant. I, and and I think, I was just, actually, I was in the podcast on the way to work today and Daniel Cardamal was being interviewed um, on this particular podcast, pod, yep. podcast by Shane Parrish. And he was talking about heuristics and he was talking about, like, biases and this yep. is what you're talking about. Right? And he said, so essentially it's biologically imperative for us to conserve as much energy as possible, right? And yes. the, And the brain is the biggest consumer of calories yep. in the body. Yep. So the prefrontal cortex that humans have is essentially an incredible energy-saving device. So if we don't deliberately choose to think, we won't, right? And, it, it, and I think they called it system one and system two in thinking fast. Yes. And slow. I can't remember. Yep. yep. And, and this is sort of what you're talking about. And I go, so we, we very quickly default to our,
0: our biases, our, our, our predisive, well, this that's is the way the world the, works. That's where the biases come from. Because our brain is, as you said, saving the energy because it can't do it all. And fascinating in that, the brain actually determines most of our decisions, including what we say, etc. Is done on prediction. So you know, with a good thing for Aussies is, is sport. Yeah. So the, um, the a ball comes at you really quickly, right? The guy reaches out, grabs it, catches it. Mm-hmm. He thinks he saw the ball coming and caught it. Mm-hmm. It's not true. That happened before he perceived it and his brain was trying, it knew that it was going to catch the ball, or not, which is why some people can't catch it. But it didn't actually happen that he saw the ball coming and caught it or she saw the ball coming and reaches out and takes hold of it. The brain has already predicted where it's going to be and activated those, that part of your arm that is actually going to send your hand to that place to catch it before you become aware of it. It's also, uh, I remember back in my 20s, I used to play polo
1: cross, and I used to think it's amazing that you could catch a ball behind your back. This is right. Right? Yes. And, and And I always used to say to myself, don't think about it. Yes. You're right? Because, you know, if someone came down the field and just threw this ball at you, and you, you, you must have seen it come out of your peripheral vision somewhere, mm. and you could reach behind not your back but really your shoulder yep. and just grab it. Right, and I always thought, God, and I just go, "What's happening in my brain?" Yes, and some people. I mean, I had mates who were just geniuses at this, and they could mm. literally catch it behind their back. And I just find that just mind blowing that the brain can work yes. this stuff out. Yep, yep, it is. I agree. Mind blowing is a great word for it. All right. So how did how did the journey come to where you are now? You're the like the CEO of Real West, like your head of counselling. So how did you get from counselling youth? Yeah, through to now. I mean, I
0: know you've done a ton of education and a lot of other stuff. So, so uh, the education happened along the way, mm-hmm. and I just did it. I worked with someone who once said to me, "Time not spent studying is wasted," and he meant his spare time, right. evenings, and such. And that suited my world, so mm-hmm. I studied for a long time. But I'd had enough of working with teenagers. I was a teenager, I'd just I'd had enough of it, so I thought I need to change. I went to work for BGC, I think, mm-hmm. for a year or two, but I just changed what I was doing, and then. The, um, oh, that's right. I went and studied psychology. I had enough, <laughs> I would put together enough money. I could actually take some time off work and go and study full time. So I decided to do that. It will also work well for my career um, if I stayed with the department. So I hadn't left at that time. But I think it's okay to say my wife at that time had a um, significant event where she was deeply threatened at work. She mm-hmm. worked with, um, they'd worked, for, shifted from working with ch- children to a new remand hostel that the government said this is a great place if kids haven't been found guilty yet they should not be locked up so they put them in a remand hostel and the notion was you'll have complete control and if they misbehave you'll simply almost push the button and people will come and take them off and lock them up. So there was a, a group of um, women that were excellent at working with children in a McCall Centre and this is one of the things that's bring together our story. So the minister... Visited McCall and they worked with young, they worked with mums, with children where um, very early on had been picked up, there were behavioural issues, right? So this is often the community nurse knew the mum was struggling or such. Mm-hmm. And so the parents would get referred to this McCall centre. McCall would take, if the child was a little bit old, they'd take the child in, they'd get the behaviour under control and then bring the parents in and teach them how to do it. How how to control these children. And often some of them were on Ritalin. They were on – they took them off all the medications and used behavioural – true behavioural modification techniques in the sense of just good – you know, rewarding what you want. Don't give attention to what you don't want. And um, the kids would would come good. Brilliant program. Minister wanted more of it. So the bureaucrats combined it with community support hostels where I worked, which was not quite so successful – and then they shut down those early intervention programs. I do not know the history. I may get shot if this gets out, but that's what happened. Yeah. So that's part of my confrontation with working for this organ- a, a bureaucracy that does that. But I think, you know, but
1: w- without, again, going back to our point that it's criticizing, right? So these, you know, at the time you're you're on the cold face here and you're, your wife at the time was mm. on the cold face. And that really affects you. And you're going, kind of like, why did they make that decision? Yeah. But there might have been, like you said, oh, absolutely. A, you know, at the time, to those people in whatever role,
0: it was like, it was a no brainer. Like, it was like, it probably a, was. Do you know exactly. what I mean? Exactly. Good comment. Yes. Yeah. Hopefully that's kept me out of jail. Thank you for that. <laughs> <laughs> no, but, and
1: I always think the trouble is, is we sit there outside. These decisions with no context. Yeah, yeah. Definitely. Because it affects us. It does hurt us. We as 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 just residents of whatever, yeah. these things deeply affect us. And we just sit there and go, What Muppet made that decision? <laughs> you know, like, yes. But But that poor Muppet probably had a thousand other things they had to compromise on. What a
0: generous (laughs) statement. How good are you? Good on you. (laughs) I don't always say that. (laughs) I expect the invoice for therapy at the end of the (laughs) session. So that's good. So she had this, she couldn't stand it. So she she was deeply affected, had to leave work, Mm. was paid out. And so it's like, well, I'll just go and study for a while and and choose something different. So um, I only had a surf shop. Home, she wanted a surf and it worked quite well, helped set that up. Ended up running it a lot because and so I had never had anything to do with clothing stores, right? Yeah. And I got to really enjoy it. It was it was a great thing. And compared to farming, farming, you know, it's a year. Some decisions you can enact within the few months, you know, sale of sheep mm. and such. But basically it's a yearly cycle. Surf shop don't like it, next week it's gone. Like you can just change it immediately, mm-hmm. get your money. It's, it's a beautiful system for teaching you about management and how you need to be on top of it, which is your passion, of course. Yeah, and definitely. I remember I learned
1: that lesson really badly. I was, I was looking to help a small business advisor with cash flow forecasting because obviously I knew about Agrimaster and there's not much in that space. And he goes, I love what you guys do, but a year is too long. And I go, what do you mean? He goes, pretty much for me and all my clients, 90 days of the year. Yes. Right? And he goes, you guys, you work, help with your clients, managing these cash flow forecasts, et cetera, over a 12-month and sometimes 24-month, five-year yep. period. But he goes, so I actually run my clients in 13-week cycles. Yep. Right? And sometimes I break them down into one and two-week cycles. Yep. <laughs> and he goes, that's how quick it changes. Yes. And, and I was going, wow. And so, like you said, the, the, you know, in a re, especially
0: retail, yes. it's just so fast, isn't it? And Billabong were brilliant. Um, the people who had it, which was sport, sport Tech at that time, they were brilliant at coaching you if you would listen. Mm. And what, I remember one time he said to me, Chris, don't see T-shirts. Just see them as like $30 nights hanging there and you need to get them back. And if they're not selling, you need to get it back and put something else in that will sell. Because mm. you need to, oh, you know, it's a $20, you need to make it into $30. Mm. And it was a, it's a really good notion because if something's not selling, it's not going to sell easier in three months' time when it's, you know, season's changing. Mm. If it's not selling, get rid of it straight and it's, up. And it's opinion, isn't it? So especially in
1: clothing, yep. it's not what you like, it's what no. people buy. No, exactly. And I suppose in farming, we don't really get that. Sort of, you know, it, it's a very, it's a much cruder engine, isn't Absolutely, it? Absolutely, yes. Right? Yep. You know, so it's more like, yes, you get food that people buy, but the, most times as an agriculture, you're so far disconnected from that decision. Yes. Right? But in retail, it's kind
0: of, no, we don't like that colour. That's right. It's the immediate <laughs> variable. It's like it, you don't have to wait for it to not rain. You've already got it. It's already not raining. You know, <laughs> yeah. like this immediate. It's fascinating. Yeah. I, I remember talking to a lady actually at, one of the mums at school, and she was in fashion, and
1: they sold these, you know, those um, ladies' dress shops that you know sell thousand dollar dresses, four hundred percent markup. And I go, so what's with the four hundred percent markup? Yeah, yeah. And she goes, we only sell about twenty percent of that at that price, yes. right? Because she goes, when you get to that pointy end of fashion. Hmm. It you know, it either works or it just doesn't, yes. right? Yep. So she goes, we bank on selling 10 or 20% of that product at yep. that 400% and the rest we have to sell below cost. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And I was going,
0: wow, it's a brutal machine, isn't it? That like, part is, yeah, yeah. And that's why if you're good at it, if you've got that talent in that purchasing, you'll do really well. Yeah. But you have to do all of it well, but you need that component. Yeah. Anyway, back to
1: back to counselling, mate. So, you ended up at Rural West eventually. So yeah. how did you get into rural counselling? And you
0: know, so, so I became a single dad, needed a job, and that was the one that signed off on it at that moment. And I thought I can do that. It gave me flexibility that I needed. So let's get into rural counselling. So you got into rural counselling and you
1: you told me a story about your first client, right? And um, and really how that set you up, well, not set you up, but influenced you for, for what would become a long career in this, right? So tell me about that first client and how, it influ- and how that clients that experience influenced you.
0: So just, just so people know, we deal with people, some of them have, they have a billion dollars of debt combined, our clients, mm-hmm. and this one didn't. So I just want to um, mention that at the start. Yeah, definitely. But so I'm there just to listen, to see how the job's done. So I hop in, hop in the Hatchins' side in the car, and we head out an hour or two from the town, and we down the bitchin' road, down the dirt road, and eventually we hit a few potholes, and as you look out, your fences are starting to sag, and we slow down, and we pull into the driveway, and I still have this visual image of the driveway, because... I noticed there was the wreck of a car, the bones of a mm. car left. And then I realised the trees, the just dead trees along the way. And, and, you know, they were fairly stark. And then there were bones of animals. Mm. And we wandered down through the potholes to the track to the farmhouse. And it was one of those images where it had been early built, um, I think they called them war service homes. Mm. Or so that's the small timber ones. And they... It was painted, but only halfway along, and it had sort of run out of energy to paint it. And at the front of it, the you could see the veranda had actually decayed. So it had this strange image. And when we went into it, I was sitting there not saying anything because it was my job to listen. And I realised that this was a very difficult situation. And on the wall was this picture of a stork being, swallowing a frog, and the frog had its hands out around the neck of the stork trying to choke it, and it had never give up underneath it. And as I'm listening, looking at that, I hear this really distraught voice of the client as he's saying, I need somewhere for my sheep. I have to. How am I going to live if I can't find somewhere for my sheep? And I realized that like, this was a very difficult situation. So w- when we'd left and dust spilling out the back of the car as we head down the road, I said to my colleague, like, what's happened here? That like, how has this come about? And he said, oh, Five years ago, there was a group of his friends came here, and they stopped the auction by the bank of the property, and they put that poster on the wall saying, "We'll stand with you. Don't worry. We'll keep those bastards away." And and they that five years ago, and it had just progressed. And I I realised then it really confronted me that there was this challenge of working with people that you could do harm. Mm. You know, in my head, I think that's harmful. This person's life was going past. The longer they spent in that locked-in situation where they saw the world that they just needed to battle on,
1: mm. they
0: were going. They were going backwards. There, there's no good outcome from that, and I realised the challenge was to come up with a model to not be part of that.
1: Yeah, you definitely. have a
0: choice. You know, you can either just do the job and take the money, or you needed to come up with a way of not allowing that to happen. So, before mm. I want to explore this model that
1: we want to talk about. Before that, let's talk about rural West, right? So to give this a bit of context, you took a role. I don't know
0: what the organisation was called at the time. It was actually called Southern Ag, Ken. It was, they, it was done throughout the state. Little different centres had set up their own. Really, the local governments would support them. The community came up with half the money. The feds put half the money in, mm. states 10%, and you could set up a service to help. So the program was because they said, we're going. To, we don't want to subsidise farmers at all anymore. Mm -hmm. We to take away the subsidies for they used to have super phosphate subsidies and such. And they said farmers need to be able to adjust and your service is to help those that aren't doing too well at adjusting to either adjust or to leave. So that was the notion behind it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so the community that that were concerned about what was happening could set up a financial counselling service. And is that is that move is that Rural West now, which is a much bigger
1: entity, et cetera, is is the bones of it very much the same or the core of it the same? Or Was it changed over time?
0: It's quite different because um, some years on from that, say seven years after that, they um, decided to make them state. The federal minister wanted statewide services. And that's what he announced. So in WA, they decided to form a statewide service. Not all the states did that. South Australia did, but the uh, Victoria New South Wales, Queensland had multiple services. Mm -hmm. And then somewhere they decided to change their mind and they allowed multiple services, but we'd already decided on one in WA. In amongst me getting involved with coming up with a model of how to deal with it, it just seemed to me to use Harvard. Harvard were the people who were great at business and I would bring the counselling skills in to enable mm. people to understand it. So Harvard, Harvard says you look at people's values, you look at what you are trying to achieve, and then you do the maths: is mm. the business able to do what you are trying to do? So that's a good point. So this model, let's talk about
1: this model, right? Yep. So so you've come away from that going, okay, this this needs to be done a different way, right? Yeah. So so and so you approached Harvard, so so and this different way was this you were talking about this it, don't start. At the, like this case, it was the bank end. They were just fighting the bank.
0: Yeah, that's right. It, it's a, so for, I think there's two components to it, isn't it? One is people can't come to terms with their circumstances. So, in the same way as those parents weren't able to adjust what they were doing mm. to have a good relationship with their teenagers, which they actually did want. Mm. And if you could enable that change, they would choose that. To do it, so have a good relationship. In the same way, people don't choose to go broke. Mm. It might appear that they do, but they're actually not. That something else is happening in their head, or before they're conscious. Mm-hmm. So um, you, you need to have a model that's very clear about what should happen. In the sense, well, you need a framework by which people can make decisions. So you need to calm and clarify for them what is happening. Mm-hmm. They need to be able to see it in an externalized way. So what we would say is you actually – you talk about it being on the table, not internal to them. Mm. So often if you talk to someone who's locked in, you've got a friend who's, who's not doing too well with something, it's often about them. They'll talk about what's happening, how they're feeling, what's going on. Whereas if you can actually put it out onto the table and they can refer to it, like you can talk about the relationship issues by saying it's a risk to the business. Harvard has somewhere to put everything that happens, mm. right? It's also an opportunity. I saw a number of couples – Financial difficulty puts a lot of pressure on relationships. Mm. And sometimes I would just reflect to them that I could pick up that there was a lot of uh, fair bit of tension. But I would say, I give the context. Finance always put tension, often puts Mm. tension on relationships. I feel as if that might be happening. I'd often look at the guy and go, Harvard would say, This is a risk. And I assure you it is if it all goes pear shaped. But what do you want to do about it? You can put it down as a risk. We just label it and deal with it later. You can put it across here as an opportunity to do something. You can go to counselling, whatever you come up with. But it's it's an issue we should put somewhere. And that very act of talking to them about putting of putting a name to the tension and then saying, what do you want to do with it, enable them mostly to say, oh, let's put it – they would go away and think about it quite often. And my next visit, they say, no, we're going to park that. We can deal with that when we come back to it, you know, when we've got the other stuff yeah. sorted. It's very powerful. And so you can do that with a lot of the issues. It just allows people to focus in on what is critically important, which is the sort of thing you often talk about, about business, you know, wh- what's actually happening with the numbers and are we in front of what's going on and what could go on?
1: Yeah, it's about the brutal truth. We, we talked about it before on the phone. It's about that brutal truth. But without, I, I'm you know, what we do here is very numbers focused, but... What I liked about what you were talking before is, so when I think rural West, I'm thinking someone's going to come in and they're going to look at my accounts – Help me build a cash flow. It's a bit like you know. You look yep. on um, what what's that lady who made it? He, she did so well during the whole COVID. My budget or oh yes, yeah, the, yeah. She used to go and help people who got I think too many hard, still do. Yes. Harvey Norman, you know, yes. yep. forty-five month stereo systems or yep. whatever, right? She's going to go and help people with their yep their financial problems. But it's more what you're saying here is. The money sort of comes at the end you've got you you start way before
0: cash flows and 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 p and ls and those sorts of things yeah that's a great observation because we have heaps of consultants that can give advice often with our, our clients. Something is happening that the advice is no longer able to be implemented mm. or it's not relevant. Advice is no longer useful sometimes, which is fascinating because we often, when we want to respond to an industry in difficulty, we think we'll give them advice, we'll give them consultants, Mm. we'll pay money. And the evidence is it doesn't do very well. And no one knows, you know, people puzzle over why. But it's actually because at that point, the people who already are responding to clear advice because because of the way their brain is processing it, they've already taken it, Mm. right? But something is preventing us it's very interesting that we can be trapped. So when we talk about the dominant story, the way in which we tell what happened to us yesterday, a part of that traps us because that becomes how we tell ourselves the story of where we are and what's going on. Mm. So the way in which you can enable alternative stories is you actually talk to the person about alternatives to that. So you can't, you wouldn't say it in those blunt terms, but there will often be indications that people have done something that is successful. So even with, normally, I mean, people always contain the answers, actually. Mm-hmm. You just need to explore it with them in a way that enables them to do that.
1: I'll tell you a good example. As I, um, I read an amazing book around education. And one of the things was about, and one of them talks about IQ and smartness, right? Yeah. Well, this concept of IQ. And one of the studies was, is they got children, right, and put them into two different groups in a classroom, and they said, you're in the smart group and you're in the challenge group. If you're in the smart group, and this wasn't picked, what do you call it, based on, well, you might have studied this, it's just random, yeah, sle- yeah. and the kids who were told they were smarter performed better yeah. academically, and the kids who were told that they weren't smart, regardless, perform worse. So it is, how powerful these stories are. So if you say you're a battler, you will probably remain a battler. If you say you're not clever, you probably will. You know, it isn't
0: amazing how we almost convince ourselves to be something with yes. these stories? And parallel to that, they told they without telling the kids, they told the teachers the same thing. And the yeah. teacher and the impact of that on the they say to them this these couple of kids have come up in the test as being exceptionally smart. It's going to happen over time. Those kids would all improve because the teacher expectation created it. And we treat people differently, don't we? Without realizing it, yes. Yeah, and like you said, that that image
1: of that farmer, your first, that first mm. client, as soon as you see someone, the clothes they wear, the house they live in, mm. the the farm, what it looks like, you immediately treat them differently. Yeah, yeah,
0: don't you? Like, and and so for your role, that's so hard. It's one of the key things with all the crew that become counsellors with us, is that, rural financial counsellors, is that you you have to. Um, enable people to see that those biases may be incorrect.
1: Yeah, yeah. I remember I had this experience at the um, up um, race day once. So I stood next to this guy at the bar, and he looked like Angry Anderson, like head to toe <laughs> tattoos, <laughs> yeah. like the face tats, the whole, the bald head, the whole. And I was going, hook. And I was actually intimidated by this dude. Right? He would looked intimidating, and then he opened his mouth and he had this high-pitched voice, and he was really nice, right, gentle, really gentle, right? And I was going, wow, the, the paradigm just blew me away. Like, yep.
0: And talk about reading a book by its cover. It's really challenging, isn't it? The brain does not want to accept it. And I and I struggled to accept it. Yes, yeah. Great, great insight. That um, I had the chance to do some – I did behavioural economics – Um, with Harvard and um, it is fascinating the work and I I agree with you that it's fascinating it comes out of behaviour it comes out of economists not the psychologists yes and that's because I suspect it's because all of our professions develop this almost cocoon around them Mm. and that's
1: the knowledge and maybe this is an ag. So you see this in actual behaviour. So one of the things I I want to really explore with you is. So I've always been fascinated with this idea that you can get, especially in the early days. There was these two farmers who started with a a, um, a selection or a soldier settlement yeah, block, yes, yes. and in two in twenty twenty three, one owns yes. you know, you know twenty five thousand hectares, yes. and the other one is bankrupt. Yep right? And they had the same land, the same opportunity. You know, there's probably a whole lot of nuances in there that we don't know about. Mm. But this story is across Australia. Yep. Right? It's across the world, really. Yes. And what's the difference between... And it's not about wheat and sheep and cattle and
0: everything. It's something else, isn't it? It's fascinating. I think um, there's a great thing within business um, studies that would say to you there is no right... Often, there is no right decision. There is just a decision that you need Mm. to make, and then you need to keep correcting it. Mm. Yep. And um, there were these two two mates. One of them was talking to me. He was the successful one. Mm. But he said, you know, my mate made the same decision I did, the same decision to expand by about the same amount with the same debt two years after I did, and he ended up broke. Mm. And he's purely, in a sense, luck. So we know it's not all luck Mm. because the stats don't reflect that, right? But... Mm. But we know that, that luck plays a part in it. And I think
1: it's also crediting your luck. I remember um, reading once is that the people who got into trouble are the people who don't credit their luck because they actually think they're cleverer than they really <laughs> are. <laughs> well, that, yes, that Do you know what I mean? great like if, yes, that's a concept. If you think that you're good at this, you stop being mm. humble about the decisions, right? You go, okay, yeah. I did really well this year. And so it's very easy to tell yourself you're the best business, Right. Yes. But it's much harder to say, no, yes, I did make a lot of good decisions, but I got bloody lucky. So next year I'm going to approach next year with a bit of humility.
0: It's fascinating. It's completely correct. You know the – well, I think it is, what you just said. Yeah with these studies of CEOs they, they were trying to find what behavioral traits make them the better and they realize it's not what we actually do is attribute to the great leaders if they've been successful we then attribute that they were always great mm-hmm. it's a it's a bias we have in observing them mm-hmm. and mostly when they when harvard looked at the top executives and how successful they were the worst thing that can happen is that they get recognized as being successful cuz in virtually every case, not just one or two, in every case, they ended up performing much poorer going forwards. Some of it's because they took time off to write books, to be interviewed, but other is they were never there. What you've just said is completely correct. And I think with ag... Yeah. It's, it's in, in, this is not just ag, this is every industry.
1: This is the danger of drinking your own Kool-Aid, right? <laughs> and this is with CEOs, industry CEOs, yep. um, any farm managers, anything, right? Is as soon as you start seeing yourself as infallible. Yes. You stop making objective, clear decisions because you don't think you can get it wrong, right? And Google did this, right? So a lot of, and so this is one of the dangers I found where people would, Um, I think it was either Daniel Carter or or David Rock. He was talking about the danger of copying business leaders, right? whether that be in ag or whether that be in anything else. Yep. Because we think, okay, I'll just do it the way Facebook did it or do it the way Google. They didn't even do it the way they did it,
0: right? (laughs) Yes. Right? So all this is
1: is written afterwards. It's a story of success. Which is actually based on a bunch of random accidents. Google tried to sell out for a million dollars. I know. How about that? How about I being Beth Blake who turned him down? Yeah. And he got yeah. turned down yeah. and because they they didn't want to do it. And the only reason they expanded is because they needed to pay their investor back. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And so they wanted to get rid of the thing. So So Brilliant. there's this billion dollar accidental business. And so then you get all the academics write case studies on how to do business like Google. Yeah. Google doesn't even do business like Google. <laughs> no, that's right. Yeah. Anyway, so now talk about, so financial success, right? So you deal with a lot of people at the the other end of financial success, but we're talking about heads in the story. So one of the things I'm fascinated to explore is when we face financial difficulty, whether we're a business that's, you know, got a good balance sheet or not, how do we make Good decisions in, in a in a point where so for example this year ags had a pretty good run in the west at least right and yep. so um, the season hasn't finished off very well in the the eastern and northern wheat right so there's a few people going maybe the budget's not going to work like it like we thought it will this year yep. right? so suddenly everyone's getting a little tighter right? So how do we think clearly in that situation? Now, you've seen people at the very extreme end of that situation. So what lessons have you learned about how, how to think in that
0: situation? I congratulate that northern wheat belt on doing it really well. So it's what they do. And I think what they do is they recognise what's going on, they recognise the impact, and they act accordingly fairly early on. And as I understand it, that, that's the lesson that they would give us. And they have decision points. What you know is at the at the day you're standing in the paddock looking at the sky and there's no rain or you've got sheep and you've got no feed or it's going to – well, before you've got no feed, but it's going to run short. It's very difficult to make this the hard decision on that day unless you've already been through it in your mm. head. Yeah. So that thinking things through, that pre-planning, uh, that – that's what they do, and I think that makes a lot of sense. They have in their head what they're going to do. Some guys would actually, I remember them explaining one time about they uh, they go in with canola early, but if it doesn't succeed in picking up, they actually spray it out and put something else in over mm. the top because it, it still gives them a chance. And they've done the maths. It's worth, you know, mostly it comes off. But that's the thing. They've done their maths.
1: So they're not just randomly going and making. It, it looks intuitive, and they'll probably even tell their friends this is intuitive. Yeah. But it's not like some of the most successful people and our clients that I've had the privilege to meet over the years just know their numbers like like their yeah. DNA, don't they? Yeah. Like this is not a gut decision.
0: No, I respect. They. Um. I remember them saying to me in the because I worked out of um, inland from Geraldton for a while in with, with the farming groups up there. They would say that you can tell what if so, they'd be concerned about younger crew coming back or such, if they weren't able to talk in the, in the right language about, you know, cost per hectare. Cost, you know, there's a language that they wanted to hear from the, their colleagues, you know, that, and they would be concerned when there wasn't and they'd be thinking, we need to do something for these guys to get across it.
1: I reckon there's a thing, I, I agree with you, if I meet someone and they start talking about things like, let's say in the sheep area, if you start talking about wool cup per head... I can almost predict what your business looks like. Yes, do you know what I mean? Rather yes. than walk up per hectare or, or yep. gross margins, it, it it goes back to that language, isn't it? So yes. we we are what we think. Yes. Yeah. So if you think in return per hectare, um, uh, you know, cost per DSC or per, you know, those
0: sort of minds, you tend to evaluate things in a very different way, don't you? Yeah, I think so. one of the fascinating things about the research in neuroscience is how malleable our brains are. So that way that we approach it actually modifies our minds, it modifies our brains, and they actually develop slightly differently. So it's not just you have that knowledge, you've also got a way in which the brain is then linking ideas together and and decision making fits against those concepts.
1: Yeah, I remember there's um, a lot of people would have either watched or heard of a, a very popular series on somewhere on this from the, the streaming center called Yellowstone. Yeah. And yep. I think in one of the, it might have even been the very first episode, um, there was this incredible bit of dialogue and um, Rit. I think I can't remember the actors. Anyway, the, the John, the dad, and he had his son in the in the car and they were saving. And he was wanting his son to come to town to talk to the bank manager and apprentice sale and do all this business stuff. And he goes, Dad, I'm I'm too busy, I'm here working the farm. Yeah. And he goes, Why don't I have control yet? So his his son was in his mid thirties and he yeah. goes and he goes, The problem is, son, you can't tell the difference between working a farm and running a farm and they're not the same thing. Yeah. Right,, yeah. or running a business in this case mm. and and I think what you're saying this is the same thing, isn't it? Running a farm business is not the same as working a farm, like driving tractors, you know drenching yeah. sheep that's a whole that's a different skill yes. set, isn't it? yes, and so when you're talking about these people coming back and listening to the young people coming
0: back, can they run the business? yeah, I think that's what those guys are saying, what that community guys being generic like they're they're a really good um partnerships up there. But uh, yeah, that's what they'd say. I think it's slightly different to if you start to get into financial difficulty. Mm. So one of the things they they do in MBAs these days is they spend quite a bit of time on people understanding their own biases Mm. because those biases are the things that, you know, one of the fascinating things is what you're really good at can be the reason you go broke. Mm. Fascinating. We are inclined to do more of what we're good at. Yeah, we tend to repeat it because we can, yeah. we, it's easy. Yeah. And so, and under pressure, if we just know absolutely for everyone who comes under pressure, the ability of their mind to think broadly diminishes. We, as, as we come under pressure, we, we, the brain just can't conceive as many things as it used to. It may be chasing all over the place, but it can't just calm and hold and consider things as it used to, as, as it would normally when you're relaxed. So, under pressure, your brain is working less well, can see less options. And if you become, a, as soon as you become aware that you're under pressure, it does pay to go and, and have a yarn to someone, you know?
1: When you're under pressure, suddenly your capacity to find solutions shrinks because
0: you're, what you're saying is you default to, yeah. to what's easy. While under the pressure. Well, yeah, and sometimes it may be what's hard, but you, your brain just picks out what has worked previously. And if that's just go out and sow another crop, that's what it will want you to do. If it was to just ignore your partner telling you you can't pay your bills and just to, to just go and just ignore that and do make decisions to spend money because you think you need to. That will seem really logical to you at that moment within that stress. So, is it about control? Is it is it
1: about doing something? So, there's always these crazy events. It's not just limited to ag, where people start going broke, and and it's almost like a a plant that's just about to die. You know, like if you look at a tree or something that's just about to die, they shoot up a thousand flowers yep. in this mad event to try and save <laughs> themselves, right? People do that with spending, don't they? Like they, 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 are in financial trouble, so they go and buy something like really expensive. <laughs> um, is it control? So when we, and I think this is not a not a judgment on the people who do that because I think we're all messed up humans, right? So, so why as humans do we do we, we tend to make these
0: crazy default decisions? Well, I, I can't tell you why. But I do know psychology says that people will make, they have a name for it, because we love naming things, and they do name that, that if you've actually been without, when you get it, you actually, you'll spend more, you, or if, you, if you've been struggling for a while and you suddenly get extra money come in, you'll just go out and spend it, which is why they, you know, under the, with the GFC, they mm-hmm. thought if we give these people money, they'll go and spend it, it hits the economy immediately, because it does. Yeah, the why is much more difficult. Yeah, but it, but it is an interesting. But being aware of it is is hard. what you do about it.
1: And is is your role as a counsellor, and you're the crew that you work with, is that actually part of your role to get people to understand why they are doing what
0: they're doing? Is is, is it go that deep? Like yes, but not from account. So we imagine counselling is a psychologist taking someone down a deep dark path a therapy and sitting mm-hmm. on the couch. Nothing like that. So what you do is, what we do, Harvard says, hey, you should look at it. You should look at your values. You should look at what you're trying to achieve, what's mm-hmm. important to you, and values being what it is you value, not some hysteric I value honesty, mm-hmm. right? It's actually about what do you really value? What do you, what do you hold important? What is it you're trying to achieve? And then does the maths allow business? It? And it's actually the business. It's not just the finances, it's like is the business structure. Are you able to do that within what you're doing? And it's also about for those businesses checking, they have a lot of people they may have a lot of people that guide them. They may have consultants and such. Mm. It's about enabling them to use those consultants well to answer the questions. So what we do is we would calm and clarify with them what's important. And the very what what is surprising is most people in the country, most People who farm have never been completely honest about this situation with anyone. Mm. We just don't talk about it, do we? Like, we don't. I would say that difference when I moved to the city. Yes. Right. So when
1: I'm in the country, you're happy to talk rubbish about yep. wheat, your wheat yield yeah. and your yeah. sheep and all that. Rubbish. Put a few extra kilo on. Yeah, and you always have the good, good crop in the front yeah, paddock. Right. And yeah. but when I got to Perth twenty three years ago, people talk about business and margins and. Because we don't have much in common from a production point of view, so money becomes the the conversation. Yep. Right. Whereas, and it just made me think in this whole time in ag, you just don't mention.
0: No, that's the, right. The M word. Yeah. We don't actually like people going broke. We don't respect them. And as soon as someone is going to have to sell, everyone is about how cheap they can get the land, not it's right. vultures, isn't it? It isn't it? it is. It's a very difficult space. That's why what we. You know, everything is completely confidential. People don't really know. A lot of people still don't know we exist after nearly yeah. 30 years in total because um, because it's so confidential. But, yeah, it's finding somewhere that you can actually discuss that, which is why I argue the Rural Financial Counseling. there is no other service like it. Like it just there is nothing that, that is similar. But is it? Is not it
1: amazing? It's almost like you must find the success stories. Whether now the success stories doesn't always mean that they stay farming, does it? I remember someone else I interviewed so on a previous podcast. I can't remember what number. Stuart Wesley, and he has this great question for people going through. In this case, it was succession. Yep. Is this farm toxic to your family? Yeah. And I love that because most of us would wouldn't ever want to ask that Throwing question. That in other words, is this what we want to do? Is this good for us? Yeah. Now, if the answer's no, then suddenly the, the world's your oyster, really, isn't it? Yes. Right? And so do you always, do people always frame their success whether they can stay farming or not farming, or is it about,
0: is there different types of success? Most, most people would want to continue if they could. That's why they come to you. That's why they're still there. But it is true that on exploring it, often they will realise success is something different. For them it's a fascinating thing we are really good at dealing with reality but mm. but some things dominate our story and we can't get to it and it's a fascinating thing that we can be caught up in this story that is actually not the complete story and once we see the complete story we wish we would made those decisions differently a couple of years before and, and changed things earlier it's mm. fascinating so you know as at the royal commission into banking misconduct they asked me to go on a panel advising the the commissioner and so I'm in Brisbane, I'm sitting in a cafe, drinking coffee, watching the in this sort of a quadrangle area outside where it's all being held, inside the courts. And as I'm sitting there, I, and I've been there before, because they have you come in for a week, for a few days beforehand, talking about stuff and getting ideas. So what I did, while I'm sitting, I say that these people, this is different. And suddenly my brain... It dawned on me that these actually were distressed farmers, country people had come in, so different to the city people that had been wandering through this. And all of a sudden I thought, <laughs> I won't swear about it, but I thought, damn, I'm going to have... Because what I had to say to the Royal Commission is, is actually the banks, in our experience, we had always been able to resolve difficulties with banks, mm. never behaved badly, actually, but I'm not saying they hadn't, and I'm happy, like, they, they came up with their own results. But my part of it was that if you deal with it in this way, it works. And then I realized these people, that was, they didn't need to hear that. And so I had this short time, I'm end up trying to get into the building and it's all crowded. So I'm pushing, I'm actually squashed. A few people recognize me from somewhere and they were saying, good day. I finally get taken up and popped in a little room off to the side once I was recognized. And I realized as, I'm running through my head how to recognize what was happening. I realized that it's, it occurred to me that it's because they feel something wrong has happened, their values are offended because mm. their values, like something's happened that distressed them. So in the actual, when I was being interviewed in front of people in that, in front of that gallery, mm. after I said that about the recognition people needed because they felt offended that something was morally wrong, they clapped. And the, the commissioner wow. was quite happy. He wanted me to say more. I really had nothing more to say. Yeah. But, but it's fascinating, isn't it? Because many things can hold people up. But one of the things is when what's happening to you is offending your values. Mm. And I have heard many farmers saying, I, I'm going ke- to fight this. I'm going to keep going because this is wrong. Like in many ways, we would hold that in high regard. But you need to work with that person to enable them to see that they're up. They're, they have alternative stories to that. They have an alternative way of constructing it that may not have them burn the last. And it is only one story, isn't it? And we and we live. One of theirs. It's the dominant story. Yes. And we we live our story, don't we? Yeah. I remember um,
1: someone said to me earlier on this year. They said. People are often criticized for thinking that they're the center of their own universe, right, but you can only be the center of your own universe because that's how you see the world. that's fact, how you're quite
0: healthy too apparently
1: yeah so <laughs> it, it, so it's really interesting, so we see it as criticism, but the important point of what you're saying here is that to realize that your story is one of seven
0: billion stories and, ah yeah. so I mean that's true. But I'm actually saying your story that you're telling yourself is only one of many stories you could tell yourself. Yeah, so you could tell yourself a different story. There are alternative stories that you actually believe. So it's not me telling you what your alternative story should be. It's me exploring with you alternatives to that that you already contain. You already have the alternative story. Yeah. Like everyone who's locked into something has they if you explore with them you go, oh, "I'm really interested in that." Tell me about that. Tell me, oh, have you got an uncle that would have said something different? What what would he have said? And they'll go down that, and they'll often see things differently having explored it. You cannot tell them, and it's no good the uncle telling them, but asking them to tell you what that person would have said. There is often someone, almost always, in in honesty, in people's worlds, you could say to them, did you ever have anyone who would have disagreed with you? Who was that? And what would they have said? And they'll tell you. Because it just opens up that access to that lot of thinking that didn't exist until you asked them. I had that
1: experience once in a training course in the 2000s sometimes, and they said, I want to be, you want to be your own coach. And I go, how? And he goes, think of the person that you would love to get coaching from in business, right? Write them down on your bit of paper. Now ask them the questions. I go, what do you mean? Now ask them the questions. And tell, And then write down what you think they're going to tell you. Yep. And they go, that's pretty much what they're probably going to tell you. And it didn't cost you a thing.
0: (laughs) Right? (laughs) Yes.
1: Right? And it was just a little answer that that we feel that because if it comes out of someone else's mouth that sometimes it's more valuable or we can't solve this problem. We we do – not always, but we have a lot – if we could externalize ourselves, we have – we actually have the
0: answers. We're just – don't accept them, do we? We think we're in charge because our conscious mind tells us we're thinking about it, but a lot of this is happening before we become con- before it reaches our consciousness. The other one is prescriptions. I, I read, um,
1: this great passage um, from Marcus Aurelius this morning, which sounds weird. <laughs> I won't even go into <laughs> no, I why I
0: understand why you do that, all right? <laughs> <maybe. laughs> anyway, <laughs> anyway, so he
1: has this thing and he says, Why? So he wrote this meditation, he calls it, and he said, So why is it that? we accept whatever our doctors tell us to do. If the doctor says, walk barefooted in rocks or have an ice bath or stop eating this or whatever, we go, well, our doctor said that. So it, I know it's uncomfortable and unpleasant, but I'm going to do it. Yep. But if life delivers us unpleasantness, we fight it with all our passion, right? And his thing was, was, well, what if we just accepted it like doctor's orders and just adapted to it? It's almost like play the game. Now, words, don't judge the game, just play the game, and in in whether he's right or wrong, it's about perspective, isn't it? Like, if you treat this like a game, if I want to win the game, I don't have to um, say that the roll of the dice was wrong. I just have to play what I can with the roll of the dice I got.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I'll agree, because to go deeper is like quite complex. But it's it's abs- we have a bias towards believing expertise, don't we? We we do. Yeah, and oh. um, it's fascinating to. To consider, yeah. So, just to get towards the pointy end, because um, we've talked
1: about a thousand other things. So, okay, I'm a young farmer, I'm one of those young farmers, right? And I've come up and I go, I really want to do well at this, Chris. Like, you know, I've got the opportunity to eventually take over the business. Um, and I know that, um, and I feel that pressure because ultimately. I'm going to become my, the um, head of my parents' superannuation fund, which yeah. is a reality for most farming families, and we forget about that. The next, and gen- no, I think that's why it's so nervous, is that the next generation do become the head of your super fund, yes. and that's whether they, <laughs> whether they are successful or not, really is going to impact you yeah. in your retirement. So, so this young farmer or farming couple have come to you and said, Chris, okay, what have you learnt? That you can give. What wisdom can you give me for after your many careers of looking at these? <laughs> if I want to get this right, what do I have to pay attention to? Because I know how to drive a tractor, and I, you know I'm I, I'm okay on the farming stuff, and I've got an agronomist and
0: yada yada yada. But how do I keep this business or make this business successful? So I don't have that answer. I would have to them who, who, where do they think that lies? The answer to that lies. I would ask them, like, who do they perceive? Where do they perceive that knowledge exists? Mm. And are they accessing it? Um, if I had to give a couple of like hints to it, I would just say, I think it's very important for a business to bring guy advice and in into the business, mm. but and not export decision making. Mm. So it's a really it's a subtle concept. But, you know, if you actually seek um, consultants to actually make decisions for you, I think very often you will fail. But if you bring them into the business to make decisions with you, and you listen to the guidance and, and the advice they give, and you make the decision, then you, you there's something subtle about keeping control that works.
1: Yeah, so it's, so it's using advisors as advisors, not as, I don't know, decision makers. Yeah, you?
0: yeah. Yeah, I reckon that's key, because it also lifts to perceive things like that. Also means they're thinking about it from from the from the business point of view. How do I be be a better business? Does manager? it also
1: mean that? So what I what I notice with our with our really successful clients is they know their numbers really well. So nearly all of them have yeah. one or many advisors, okay. but they know their numbers almost better than their advisors do. Yeah. Well, ultimately they do, yeah. right? Yeah. So they do take a lot of advice, but they have deep understanding
0: and control. Is it that sort of what you're saying? Well, I I probably would be very happy to add that you should be able to measure what you manage. Mm.
1: If you can't
0: measure it, you can't manage it. I think that's a truism. Yeah. Like I think it's just accurate. So there's a few things like that you would – I guess if you gave me more time, I would I could come up with a number like that. But they do need to be – you you need to have the information on your business, don't you? Yeah. And more so than ever because it's becoming more complex. It's a really dynamic field, isn't it? Well, I, I wrote a, actually a blog post earlier a couple of days ago,
1: and it was really I was thinking about this in the context of um, m- money, and especially now, like farms are pretty big now. Yeah. Um, yeah. But the it's almost like the 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 stakes are high now. So the cost of capital is just immense yep. now, right? So the land, machinery, livestock, everything's expensive, right? Yep. Inputs are just nuts expensive, right? So the, the stakes are high. Yes. Right? The money's good when it's good, yep. yeah? But the stakes are high. So having a deep financial understanding of this machine and how it works is just almost more crucial than it's ever been, really. The, it seems like, the, I don't know if it's true, but there seems to be less wriggle room now. Like Even though the, the numbers are bigger, there seems to be a little less wriggle My room. My
0: background would say the risk has increased. Yes. It, it does, even though the number and they've been really good. So the last decade, it's been pretty good for most people. Mm-hmm. Um, but you, um, yeah, you need to know your num- the numbers. And, for, you know, one of the um, one of the interesting things is, it's just that concept of the small savings can save you so much. Mm-hmm. It's why the northern, oh, northern I agree, but it's why some of them are so wealthy is mm-hmm. because they're large enough to take advantage of everything it just gives you a small percentage increase. It works and it makes a lot of money for them. And they can do that because they're big enough to be able to implement those things. I have this bias that I think in the Northern Ag I always say to people like, especially
1: with Agrimaster um, budgeting and, yep. final, and power users, I'd say, yep. I say our power users go up as rainfall goes down. Yeah.
0: <laughs> I think it's true. Absolutely. Because you could, I could wrap it on about, and I'm a little bit out of touch now yeah. probably, but um, the actual, you're talking kilograms per hectare between making and losing money. Yeah. In in like six out of ten years, that's amazing. A few kilograms to the heck there, really. Scarcity really, really makes
1: you think. Well, though, doesn't it? Like it, it, it's it's a lot of pressure. Like I can even say that in software, right? In in our business, I always say that mm. my I'll use a dadism. I call them my dad. he says you always make the work? You always make dumb business decisions with money in your pocket, right? <laughs> right? <laughs> Um and and so I reckon the most innovation we've ever had as a business when we just can't we don't have enough to do what we want to do. Yep. And I almost feel like the the clients we're talking with the, the farms we're talking about have never got enough to do you know, they don't have enough rain, the soil, that they've always yeah. got these challenges, but that makes them particularly inventive and clever and you know, the, the constraints make bring out the talent, don't they?
0: Yeah. There's nearly Yeah. It's, Harvard would claim that there is nearly always opportunity within your business, not outside of it, mm. within within the industry you know, to just do it better. The only way to do it better is to actually know your numbers, like to, to have it running really, really to know what's going on really well, and also in your business. So we we tend to have an
1: industry this massive um, bias towards external benchmarking, and there's some amazing benchmarking all around Australia. In Western Australia, we have some outstanding long term. Public benchmarks, right? But I've always argued for internal benchmarking because every farm business is so different, ultimately, yeah. right? So it's really about kind of how did I go last year and how can I improve on that this mm. year, rather than just compare myself against yeah. another person. And there's just so many. I mean, there's a lot of things you can learn from that. I'm not dismissing mm. that, but I'm just saying, don't don't I take your absolutely. Con- you know, benchmark recommend. yourself. Yeah, no, that's where the advantage is. Yeah, I was listening to the head. Um, I'm an F1 fan, and like like many people, and yeah. I was listening to um, the team principal of uh, McLaren actually, uh, Andrea Seidel, and he was talking about this, you know. And obviously, the journalists are going, "How do you compare to Williams? And how do you compare to Red Bull?" And, and he goes, "We don't actually think about speed. We just think about as a you know, they got a team of a thousand, which is nuts, right? Mm, and is- and we're looking for okay, we're trying to remove." X tenths. Where I we this? So they're all their benchmarking is not external, it's internal. Yes, so they they have to yeah. race on the weekend and they have to they get these very brutal benchmarks. Yeah. But from their improvement process as a company or as a race yes. team, it's all internal. Yeah. How can we as a business improve on what we did last week? Yeah.
0: I like the concept.
1: And I think as a farm business, I always think that we tend to focus too much on what other people are doing. Rather than how do we you know, improve our return per hectare. How do we reduce costs? How do we,
0: you know, whatever? Absolutely, yes. And every year you'll get a yeah. bit better. Yeah, yeah. And it's what what are your weakest links in your business? Yeah. Is what is it that's holding you back? Yeah, your enterprise. And you have different soil, different talent, different.
1: Yeah. You might have young people. You might not have young people. You might have. Everything's different, yeah.
0: isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Oh, absolutely. And now. Like in actual fact, for larger properties, soil makes a huge difference. Yeah, they'll, they'll tell you the guys with planes they can see where the good, the really good soil is. They know it. So the ones that the you know in the in the districts where you've got a few people flying gliders or such, which Morawa has, you know, like you've got there are these people that they know the good soil stands out. Every year, oh yeah, right. and it depends yeah. which year. I know we're on our farm. Well, that's true. Yes, on our farm,
1: if we have a wet year, some soil types are amazing. On a dry yeah. year, they're horrible. And I think that's. <laughs> I was even I had a podcast. I don't know if we were related with Andrew Fowler, which is amazing, and he talks about um, um, weather on different parts of your farm. So you can't say you've had this many mills. You can say, well, these paddocks had this many mills, yeah. but I
0: don't know what the other ones did. And you know, say, so hasn't that become? A more accurate statement. I think rainfall appears to be increasingly erratic in a
1: sense. Yeah, so you can't just say, oh, when I was farming, so which was ages ago in the 80s and 90s, they used to have these concepts, the big big fronts used to come yeah. through stand up and yeah. wipe across the yep. the farming regions and used to have these, what do you call, um, rainfall events.
0: Yeah. yeah.
1: It doesn't really work like that anymore. No,
0: no that's fascinating. All right, so...
1: Just to finish up now, just on a personal note, we need to wrap up. But you have now six daughters <laughs> yeah. on and off, yeah. I yeah. claim six. You're claiming six. six? Yes, you're claiming six. <laughs> all right, all right. So, and and much that time you were you were you were a um, single dad. So, is that that experience? Like, so, you know, you've had experience with youth. You've had to bring up your daughters for some period of time. I, I'm guessing on your own. How has that experience um, informed you as a counsellor? How does that – does it impact you on a day-to-day basis when you're working with clients and that sort of stuff?
0: I think it just encourages that notion that people are different. Yeah. Like right right from little kids, they, they're they different, mm. um, I think. I don't think they're all the same blank slate and we influence them all. I think it's, it's a combination, but they certainly come with their own little biases, <laughs> personalities. Yeah. Um, and it's just, one of the hardest things to do is to genuinely recognize that, that people can think completely differently to you. Mm. They can actually perceive something completely differently. It's it's easy to say, but it's not easy to realize. You know, we had a, um, a, a seminar once, right? We had a really good um, psychologist and she was taking people through uh, just some um, ways in which they respond to a situation. So we had... Very simple thing. The team was divided up into what they thought were personality types. And she just gave them the question of how would you sack someone if you've got to drop the team? So some of the people that they genuinely would not have sacked them, they just all would have gone to four days a week to keep them employed. And the other crew, a few of them, and there were four groups, but one of them just goes, Yeah, no, we would have, uh, we just worked out who was the weakest and told them, you got to go, you're the weakest, you know. <laughs> So that's all good. Everyone laughs and not so happy about him, and the ones who are soft, yeah. you know, don't like this. And then there's a throwaway comment from that group where he said, you, and then you go home and cry in the shower that night. And there's this silence, and then they go, what, "What did you say?" He says, and the group all agreed that that is what they would have done. Yeah, they would go home at night, right? And like the soft, like they can't believe it. And then they go, "Did you tell the Did you tell the person that's what you're going to do?" And It's like no way. But it's so different. And it ne- I never perceived that that was their experience. I didn't realise they would say that.
1: Yeah. And right? I think, and I think we'd love to put ourselves and each other people in this box. Yeah. As- especially in, if anyone's been in an organisation like ours or yours, there's a thousand, what do they call them, personality. Yes. Per- yeah, yeah. And you, everyone looks at them and goes, yeah, it's a bit like a horoscope, really. <laughs> We're all a little bit more complex than that. And I
0: think you see that every day and your your staff see that every day in your roles. And and if you see it that way, the answers lie within that. Most people's Mm -hmm. problems lie within actually allowing them to explore it from their perspectives. If you respect their perspectives, you can respect that they have the answers to them. And also to say, like you said, I remember another
1: daddy's and my father said, you can remember your children are going to be more different to each other than random people you're going to meet in the street. Right. <laughs> and it's so true, isn't it? Like I've got three sons yeah. and they are from a, you know, like you said, perspective of how they see the world, completely different. And they've all grown up with the same parents yeah. in the same house with the same opportunities or whatever, yeah. but they're completely different humans. Yes. It is amazing. But we as um, in our workplace and in your role when you're working with clients, you have to also respect that
0: yes. if
1: you're that different within one family, within each other, we're just going to be insanely different.
0: And, you know, when they're trying to, you know, we've got their drought hubs and they're putting $100 million a year into helping farmers prepare, We, I think they've got it back to front personally, but it's really about the individuals working out what they need to do Mm. It's, you can't tell everyone the same thing because it's, it's just not going to be heard the same way, and it's not relevant. And also, they're not going to execute the same way, are they? No, they? we're actually doing a thing where we we we're actually trying to drive it by supply, as opposed to encouraging demand. Mm. Like I would actually do it by saying, "Hey guys, this is farming agriculture is the greatest industry. It is dynamic. It is it is about something that's real, and you can make and if, you know, and whether you like technology or whether you want to do. Practical hands-on stuff, it's all there, yep. Um, and it's up to you to succeed, actually, mm. you know, and put it out there. And all the information you need exists. They just need to chase it down. I always say there a number of study groups from other countries that come
1: to, to Australia yeah. to study it. Because of the constraints and the lack of support, it yeah. makes it so
0: dynamic. And and WA is so much better than the eastern states when you look at at, at the numbers. We do it so much better because our government basically doesn't support ag in any way that is transactional. Which seems, seems
1: I don't know, you know, there's going to be so many different opinions on that stand. Yep. But it does make amazing businesses.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, it does absolutely. Like we don't have many, but we have. They're pretty good. (laughs) And I often think the role of of, the reason I support Raw West is that it actually helps helps the market work. So half of our people probably um, adjust and adapt and become more profitable, Mm -hmm. and the other half choose to to go somewhere else. Mm -hmm. And that's what you need, and you need it without destroying value. I love that idea of adjusting without destroying value because it seems like a zero
1: sum game sometimes, but it's not.
0: No. No. If when you're managing it and you start to realise things are getting tight, getting the additional insight at that time allows you to to make good decisions. So it's like a stitch in time saves nine or whatever. It is, yeah. Yeah, It's fascinating to me that our clients, because sometimes um, it has been set into state that our job is to do what the clients ask, and I totally reject that. That's why we map it against the Harvard framework with the clients together, but you map it against something that says, this is how you should look at it. And Harvard have got some reasonable minds, haven't they? Mm. So they've said, this is how you should put it together. And um, that enables them to make much better decisions. And then at the end of it, nearly all of them have said in their comments, we wish we'd done this sooner. Couple of years sooner.
1: I reckon I'm gonna. I think that's almost going to go on in everyone's epitaph, isn't it?
0: <laughs> yeah, I remember right. reading this one thing, and it said
1: one of the ones is like, I wish I'd done this sooner. And the other, and the other, one, I remember reading this um, funny thing. I can't remember what was, one platform or another, and it said um, someone on their had on their tombstone. And they wanted to have it written. It was a lot harder than I thought it would be. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so. When you're not working, Chris, I mean, you you you're a busy man. You have got a big organisation to run and and lots of kids. What do you do when you're not working? Right? I suggest you I
0: play with agromasters and have fun.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, that means you get extra brownie points over right, doing
0: it. <laughs> I, you know, it's uh, what I actually like doing is keeping up to like Scientific American has yeah. this, you know, those guys doing research, writing about what they're doing from all over the. the the world, really, but especially America. And I love reading about where it is. So I don't understand all of it, but just to see what's happening fascinates me. And also the stuff that you read about and you go, wow, that's cool. And it might not come to pass or it might come
1: to pass in 20 years' time. Yes. I remember reading in – my dad's a scientific American um, reader. I remember reading in the 90s about um, internet over power cables, right? And I was going, whoa. Yeah, and you know this is the Could 90s We've got dialer, yeah, right? yeah. And now it's just like a 15 dollar device in JB Hi-Fi. You're right. <laughs> yes. Yeah, and um, and I, was, I remember reading about um, power grids in roads. Yeah, right. And I think in, and so this is now becoming. They're really thinking about putting, you know, essentially, so you can drop something on out of the bottom of your bus and trams and cars and stuff, yeah. and actually charge your car as you're driving. Yeah. Right? it's amazing how these things. You know, we think of tech as someone's just suddenly come up with something. And we're facing that with agri-tech at the moment. But often this tech's been around a long time,
0: hasn't it? You know, 50 years ago, and Ozzie developed a battery that actually it works a fraction different to the ones in our phone, and it doesn't deteriorate. At least fifty years of life out of it. You can get them for houses at the moment. There, but they're not as what they're called dense, right? So yeah. they don't work particularly for cars. Work really well for houses. But fifty, and they think it will outlast that. They're saying it will have full function for about fifty years, wow. and. There's also that, you know, we developed that amazing, that only the Chinese have built one. We think we've got a battery. The Australians invented some years back that will never run out. It never deteriorates. Like right. Everything's kept separate. Whatever it is that deteriorates normally in batteries, yeah. the vats come together with the chemicals for the purpose mm-hmm. of doing it. And then, right? It's a bit like the spray rigs that have everything separate and they mix it all together. <laughs> <laughs> And they built one. I mean, if that imagine if that does work, the only thing that puzzles me does is why we know that we create the best stuff, really, but we don't ever seem to be able to. Actually, it's really interesting. There the must yeah. be some big event now.
1: You're not. You, there's something happening in Canberra at the moment. Some big innovation summit or something. And, right. And Albanese actually addressed it in his speech. He goes, "We are innovating. We've been innovating in Australia off the charts. Like, yep. You know, you think of a lot." Um, Wi-Fi and all yeah, these solar, you know, panels, solar panels everything yeah. right but we don't build anything here right we don't commercialize anything right. and, he, and he was saying he well, I don't know what they're going to do but it was really he goes okay so the mission here with productivity mm. is to try and turn out our inventiveness into actual industry yeah instead of just shipping it to somewhere
0: in Europe or, yep. or Asia yep um yeah anyway Andrew Forrestman on the right track like with for when you read so Trying to have green minerals like yeah. green—it's very difficult. However, it is sensible to do a lot of that work in Australia. We have everything we need in WA because we've got huge, huge areas. We can do solar. We can create the energy to do the create the hydrogen we want. Mm. Right. It's,
1: anyway, and also the balance sheets. And it's like it's like I've got a friend who works in Shell, and his whole job is renewables. Yep. Which you believe it or not. Yep. And I go, well, because these big oil companies have got the balance sheets to pivot to renewables, right? right you love it.
0: They can burn billion and a billion dollars in And they are, we shouldn't bur- that. <laughs> and, they, and they are burning
1: billions yeah. on essentially mo- p- pivoting their balance sheets to renewables. Yes. Because they can. And mining companies like you got, you know, you got Twiggy Forest trying to do the same thing yeah. with hydrogen because these things are high risk and possible returns. So someone with a big, Couple of billion dollar balance sheets, the perfect person to do it, isn't it? Yeah. All right, mate, we got to finish. Um, so I want to know myths. Now, I know we could do a whole podcast on myths, so tell me one of your, one of your, you can have maybe two, but farming <laughs> myths. So farming is an industry full of myths, and I always like to people ask people about their farming myths. So, what do you reckon are
0: big farming myths? that we need to just call out. One of the things that, well, I don't know about we should call this out, but one of the things that helped me in farming, I actually had brought, been brought up to believe we were the only ones really working hard <laughs> and doing the right, you know, doing, and you, and you, I got to work in the city and you suddenly go, maybe a public servant does work. You know, some of them, you actually realize, and then they don't see it the same way. And that whole construct that you, like the West Australian used to have a country edition, the front mm-hmm. page and everything was for the country different to the city. And I never knew that even existed, um, but I I call that as a myth simply because I think it holds us up sometimes in being flexible in how we're going to work and what what we're going to do. We think if we leave farming, we'll we leaving we're leaving that behind. But is that your myth? Do you know? I hundred
1: percent agree with you. I was a farmer for not quite ten years, and I've been running a software company with Nat for twenty three years. Yeah. This is much harder, <laughs> yeah. like, honestly. So, and and I before I left farming, I had the same yeah. thing in my head, right? And it's it's different, but it's not easier, or you know, like and all my friends all do completely different jobs, like yours, doing the yep. internet if you live in an urban area, all your friends don't. No, no one has the same no, job as you, no, right? It's hardly anyone, yeah. and they all work hard. Yeah. yeah, it's fascinating. Yeah, it's just not. Um, they just don't always have dirty
0: hands. No, yes. And people are exhausting. <laughs> and the other thing for farmers is I think they sometimes forget how much money they control, and therefore they're the targets mm-hmm. of people that want to sell to them. And just they have a lot of money to create a story to get them to buy those goods. And if uh, for those young people that you see, the young couple mm-hmm. that comes to me, the one thing I would, or one thing I would say to them is, you need to have your own vision and, and where you want to go, your own goals, because if you don't, I guarantee you will be fulfilling someone else's goals, mm. right?
1: Yeah, you know, one of my favourite things is this. Someone once said to me, the "Responsibility is a compound word, right? It's actually two words. It's actually responsibility, right? So if you choose to own everything and make decisions and and you have control over your destiny. If you choose to outsource responsibility yes. to somebody else, then you're a puppet. You're essentially just working for somebody else, yeah. whether you own your business or not, right? Because you're outsourcing the decision-making.
0: Yeah. And they will shift your wealth to them. Yeah. And of course they will. That's how the human condition is, isn't yes. it? Yes. And so, yeah, and so if if you're not inclined to do that, it's finding a gentle way in which you can do it. Yeah, you know, because you don't have to be dominant. You don't have to be a bully to do that. You just yeah. need your way of doing it together. I, I, often,
1: I love that, and especially as a partnership, find your way, because yeah. there's not a way. <laughs> yes, even your friends. I mean, our friends are all so different. Yeah. Yes. So even if you've got a friend who is really successful and operates in a particular way don't try and copy them
0: because you're completely different. Yeah, Do it your way. Yes. Your way might be copying them, of course. (laughs) (laughs) But but you need to know that it is. (laughs) uh, Do you know what? All
1: right, to go down that path, I always say there's this learning cycle, which you're across, and there's um, this idea that we have to – now, I I can't remember this. I normally have it written down, but we first have to imitate, right? And that's usually what we do. We do this as children. We just copy our parents. Mm. And then we – then we essentially internalize that, right? And get master it and then we innovate. But you have to really go through imitation, mastery, then innovation and in those sort of stations. And that's how we learn to walk, we to talk, we do business. We tend to copy people initially. And then you get to our age and you go, God, what was I thinking? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. All right, mate. Well, thank you very much for being on the podcast. I know that's a really wide-ranging
0: conversation. It was really good fun. (laughs) It was. Thank thank you. Thanks, mate. All the best.
1: Thanks again for listening to Boots Off Log On. Our aim with this podcast is to give you access to the best minds in agricultural business and to help your farm business thrive. So if you have any feedback or suggestions for the podcast, including people you believe I should interview, please email bootsofflogon at agrimaster.com.au. If you like this episode, please take time to share it on social media, or even better, directly with at least one friend today. And take the time to give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify as it really helps us reach more farm businesses like you. As always, if you'd like to know more about AgriMaster farm business management software and services, you can find us at agrimaster.com.au. I look forward to speaking to you next time. Thank you.